Earlier this week, I went to a Mexican restaurant with a few of my coworkers, and uh, we all ordered fajitas. And uh, at this place, it's a place I've been numerous times. I won't tell you where it is. You'll find out why in a moment. Uh, ordinarily, the food shows up pretty quickly. But for whatever reason, on this day, on this Tuesday, uh, we ordered and we waited for a long time for the food to come. So uh, we arrived at this restaurant at maybe 12.20. By 12.25, we had, we had sat down and we had ordered the food. Ten minutes goes by, no food. Fifteen minutes goes by, no food. And, and we're, we're beginning to fill up, you know, on the chips and salsa, which is kind of a double-edged sword at a Mexican restaurant. It's great that it's there, but the longer the food takes, the fuller you get. And so uh, 20 minutes goes by, no food. 25 minutes goes by, no food. The, the waiter would, would periodically come by, and if you've been in this situation, they're, they, they don't have any control, right? But they're like, hey, uh, it, it shouldn't be too much longer. Right, 30 minutes goes by, and at this point, we're starting to get nervous uh, and hungry at the same time. Uh, we're nervous because we have afternoon meetings to get to, and we're beginning to get hungry. And so we start to discuss what we should do to try to get the food out a little quicker. And I thought, well, maybe I should get up. I should, I should go get a manager. I, I probably don't want to, to actually go into the kitchen right, and try to see what they're doing. Uh, you know, I was reciting, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, right? Patience is the fourth one, so it must be pretty important, uh, and I want to be patient. I also thought, uh, you know, if I really make a scene, there's bound to be somebody, if I'm honest, in this restaurant that's like, aren't you my pastor, right, that is throwing plates at the staff and all of that. So, so I'm sitting there trying to, trying to work this out. 35 minutes goes by, and at this point, I said, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to gently inquire of the management what's going on with our food. And uh, right as I stood up, of course, the food arrived. And so we sat down, we ate as quick as we could. We got back to uh, our meetings, back to the office. We were a little late, but we made it. Now, I share that fully knowing that uh, there are larger stories of suffering in this room. But for me, in that moment, it was, it was sort of a microcosm of, of the challenge that we often face when our lives are not what we want them to be in the moment. And in fact, as I thought about that event, it's sort of a microcosm of a, of a theme that runs through Romans 8. Because for me, in that moment, the hardest part, believe it or not, was not the hunger. I knew I would survive. It wasn't even the fear of being late to a meeting. I knew that they could do without me at the meeting. The hardest part for me personally was not knowing what was going on in the kitchen. Not knowing if they were doing anything at all. Were they, were they working to get our meal ready? Were they, were they on a break? Were they on strike? What was going on? And we got very little information. And I realized it's really hard to wait for something you want when you don't know what is going on behind the scenes to bring about the thing that you're waiting for. As we have moved through the book of Romans chapter 8, Paul lays out, this concept that in Jesus Christ, we have the promise of eternal life and the coming of the kingdom of God. And if you were with us last week, he talked about how the spirit within us 
reminds us that we are looking forward not only to the full redemption of our bodies, not only to the full redemption of our spirits, that is this fullness of life forever in the presence of God, that's eternal life. We also are looking forward to the redemption of all of creation, that one, one day God will restore all of creation to the way it was meant to be. There will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. There will be no more separation between us and God. Everything will be right. And so he says, in the meanwhile, what do we do? Well, we groan out. We groan out seeking and waiting for our redemption. And then he had ended in verses 24 and 25 of Romans 8 by telling us we have to wait in hope because we cannot see the fulfillment of all of God's promises yet. So we we wait in hope. And as we wait, we have to endure. We have to endure. And so the question comes up as we endure, what is God doing while I'm waiting? Is God doing anything or are we just waiting in this suffering and in this groaning? Right, I said, I said in a moment ago, uh, I know for a fact that there are men and women in this room that you are facing deeper suffering, much deeper suffering than a meal that's a little bit late. Some of you are, are in grief because you've lost loved ones recently and your heart's broken. Some of you are, are suffering in a marriage that isn't what you dreamed it would be because we live in a world of sin and relational brokenness and you're, you're suffering. Or, in, or in, in a challenging situation with one or more of your, of your kids who might not be walking with the Lord or, or there might be a strained relationship and, and you're suffering and, and you're struggling. Or you're suffering with your own health and the specter of death that seems to loom over your own life. And so you... Like all of us, you're groaning and crying out, God, are you going to fix this? God, when will it get better? God, when is Jesus coming back? Because I long for that day. And God, are you doing anything in the meanwhile while I am waiting? In the flow of the book of Romans, remember Paul has laid out, in Jesus Christ we're declared right with God. He's given us the Holy Spirit to remind us that we belong to God and now we await the final redemption. And the question now that we ask is, how do I endure if I don't know what God is doing while I'm waiting? That's where Paul takes us now in the last part of Romans chapter eight. What is God doing while I'm waiting for the final redemption, not only of my own body and spirit, but of all of creation and of all God's people? What is God doing? doing? Is he at work? And the good news of Romans chapter 8, of course, is that he is at work. That even though we don't see it all, God is at work, very, very actively at work in our lives and in all of creation to work out his final plan for our salvation and the salvation of the world. So every week we've looked at a different facet of the good news. This week we're going to see this. The gospel is good news because God is working for our good while we're waiting for redemption. God is at work even when we don't see it. God is working for our good while we're waiting for our final redemption. As we struggle, as 
we suffer, as we cry out, God is always at work. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't taken his hand off the wheel. He hasn't left us alone to sort it out, but he is active and at work. That's where Romans 8, verses 26 to 39 is going to take us this morning. So if you have a Bible, follow with me. I'm going to begin in verse 26. What is God doing while we're waiting? Beginning in verse 26, Paul says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, so Paul is, is saying this. He goes, look, while we're waiting and we're enduring, a lot of times as we're suffering, we pray, God, bring relief to my suffering. God, let Jesus come quickly. God, do something to fix this. But here, here's the problem. A lot of times, even as we are struggling and suffering, and, and maybe you've experienced this, we don't know how to pray. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where there, there's a struggle in your life. You look out in the future and you wonder, how is this going to resolve? How's this relationship going to resolve? How is this grief going to be eased? Whatever it may be, you look out in the future and you say, is God going to resolve this? And so you begin to pray. But even as you begin to pray, you say, God, I don't even know what to pray for. I don't even know how to pray so that, so that you will intervene. I've had these moments, and, and, and even recently, there are days at the end of a, of a day of, of working and engaging in ministry here at the church or, or, or engaging with my, with my family that I'll go on a long walk through our neighborhood. And as I walk, sometimes I pray about the, about the challenges and the struggles and the difficulties that, I, that I'm facing about future decisions. And there are days where as I pray, I, I, I struggle. I go, God, I don't know what, what even to ask for here. I don't know what would be right according to your will. I, I'm struggling. I know that, that I'm, I'm hurting and, and people around me are hurting and I don't know what to pray. And Paul says it's in those moments that the Spirit comes in and he intercedes for us. He bridges the gap. And he uses this, this great word groanings that he had used in the previous section when he said all of creation is groaning for redemption. We're groaning for redemption. And he says, here's the beautiful thing is you're groaning out. You're crying, God, what are you going to do? He says the spirit actually groans with us, but now he takes these groanings and he translates them into language that reflects the will of God so that as I struggle to pray in this, in this in-between time after Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven and sent the Spirit, but before Jesus has returned, we're in this in-between time and Paul says, you cry out, the Spirit cries out with you and the Spirit cries out for you. What does it mean to intercede? To intercede is to stand between two parties, two people, and to translate the message, to plead on our behalf. So as we cry out, he says, the Spirit takes our feeble attempts at prayer and he translates them and he intercedes for us before God in heaven. Some of you who have uh, babies or small infants or toddlers, you know that uh, a lot of times they try to communicate things to you, but they don't always 
communicate clearly. In fact, if it's a baby, they don't know English yet, right? So all they do is cry. And uh, we, we had at least one kid like this. Maybe you've had a kid like this where they cry and they cry and you go, I don't know what's wrong. Are they, are they hungry? Are they, are they hurting? Uh, do they need to sleep? Are they just fussy? What is it? And you try to interpret their cries, but you, you don't always know. So this was interesting. I read this week that some uh, scientists at UCLA uh, decided to try to develop an app that would interpret what your baby means. It's called Chatter Baby. And the idea is you, you set it down and as the baby cries, it, 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 it divides it into categories, hungry, in pain, or fussy, right? And it's supposed to tell you which one of those uh, your baby is so that theoretically you can address the problem. Now, we know as parents, if they're just fussy, there ain't nothing you can really do, right? But the idea is that this app is, is gonna say, this child cannot communicate, so I'm gonna communicate on its behalf. I don't know how well it works. Some of you who have babies, maybe you want to try it. I'm not sure. But Paul says here, this is fundamentally what the Spirit of God does for the people of God. You cry out. You say, God, I, I'm, I'm hurting. I'm suffering. I'm waiting. I'm struggling. And I don't know how you're going to respond. And he says, the Spirit of God says, let me take it from here. And he communicates to the Father. On our behalf. And in fact, he says the Spirit even communicates according to the will of God, that he takes our feeble prayers that are often selfish and incomplete, and he translates them into language that the Father understands because the Father knows the heart of the Spirit, and the Spirit knows our hearts and minds. This is really good news. If you if you struggle with how to pray, Paul is saying it's gonna be okay. You can relax. You don't have to have the perfect words. But as he said in the previous section, we can cry out, Abba, Father, help me. And the spirit within us translates the cries of our heart. And the idea Paul is saying is while we're waiting, God is still with us and in us and among us to, to facilitate this relationship with God. And to remind us, and this is where he goes next, to remind us that God is still at work. The Spirit is interceding for us, and as he's interceding, God is still working out this plan to redeem us and to redeem all of creation. This is where he goes in verses 28 to 30. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So what a powerful passage. And, and verse 28, by the way, of course, is one of the most famous verses in all of the book of Romans, right? God, God causes all things to work together for good, or some of your versions may say simply all things work together for good. It doesn't make a huge difference which of those translations is correct, 
because they both really mean the same thing in the context, that God has a plan that he is working out for good, and and it includes all things in the universe. It includes you and me and every event and every suffering and joy and trial and victory and all of it together, God is working it all into his plan. Now, a lot of times, verse 28 is misunderstood understood and misapplied. And so I want to talk for a minute about what it doesn't mean. Because quite often, uh, Romans 8, 28 is utilized in essence to say either, hey, everything is good, right? It's all okay. So like you lost your job, hey, that may be good because you're probably going to get a better job, right? Or I've even heard it in light of, of tragedies, like the, like the death of a child, right? That, that's okay. God, God wants to use that to teach you a lesson, right? It's, it's really good, even though we know in our hearts it's tragic, right? That's not what Romans 8, 28 is saying. Uh, Some of you may remember uh, that old country song by Garth Brooks called Unanswered Prayers. And uh, the song, you know, it centers around uh, a narrator who goes uh, to a high school football game at his old high school, and he goes with his wife, and while he's there, he runs into his old high school girlfriend, Right, And she was the one that he'd wanted for all time. And every night he prayed that God would make her mine. You remember that? And so uh, he, he, he's prayed, but he didn't end up with her. And he thought, man, that was, uh, that was bad at the time. But then he looks at his wife and he goes, actually, God didn't answer that prayer, but he gave me something better. And you remember the chorus. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs, just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Now, if you don't follow the triple negative here, what he's getting at is... God cares, even when it seems like he doesn't care. And then he says some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers, right? Now, thank you, yeah. So it took me a while to remember those lyrics, so I appreciate that. Here's, here's the point I'm getting at, though. That a lot of times is how we think God works, isn't it? That, that if something bad happens, God will counterbalance it in the near future with something better. Right? So, I, so I experience a breakup, God will give me some, somebody better. I, I lose a job, God will give me a better job. If there's grief and death in my life, in the near future, I'll understand that was all part of some lesson that God was teaching or something he was doing in the near future that was better. That's not what Romans 8, 28 is saying. And I think this is important because we have to acknowledge in the context of Romans 8, Paul really acknowledges that, that suffering and death and tragedy are a very real part of the world that we live in. So what is Romans 8.28 saying instead? It is, it is not offering a quick fix, but it is offering an eternal hope. And here's what he's getting at is that all things, all things, all our suffering, all of our trials, all of our tragedies, in the grand scheme of eternity, God is working all things toward his ultimate purpose. And his ultimate purpose is good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. In other words, if you know Jesus Christ, and this promise is limited to those who have trusted in Christ for eternal life. If you know Jesus Christ, there is a promise that God's ultimate plan, the ultimate trajectory of our lives and of all of creation is good. It's not that everything that happens in the world is good. And it's not even that everything that happens in the short term will be balanced out by something good. But it is that when we 
reach eternity and we look backwards on all God has done, we will say God took even the painful parts of our story and he wove them into a tapestry that is for his glory and our good for eternity. And then he goes on and he says, that's why we need to understand God has chosen and called out you and me to be forgiven from our sins and to be redeemed because this is all a part of God's eternal plan. So he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. This word foreknew almost certainly is is the idea of choosing. And it's not that God looked ahead and, and said, wow, Matt's a really good guy, so I'm gonna, I know that, so I'm going I'm to save him. That's not it. It's that God looked ahead and he, and he chose those who were his and then predestined, mean, meaning he determined your destiny ahead of time. Now, if you're, if you're struggling with concepts like election and predestination, uh, we're going to get into that more in Romans 9 next semester. Right, but, but to be clear, what Paul is getting at here is, is he's not saying, hey, we need to kind of look around and, and only share the gospel with people who might be predestined or, or we need to spend a lot of time thinking about which people are predestined. That's not what he's getting at. He's saying, if you know Jesus Christ, remember he's talking to those who know Jesus. He's saying, looking backwards now in the rearview mirror, and this is usually how election is used. Looking in the rearview mirror, I can give you assurance and confidence that if you trusted in Jesus Christ, that's because God chose you to trust in him. And as the people of God, God has chosen us and he has given us a destiny. That destiny is to be conformed into the image of his son, to be like Jesus. So God's good plan for our lives is not to give us something better every time we lose something in the short term, but to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ so that we represent and reflect him here on this earth and for eternity. And he's working that good plan. And he says, those whom he predestined, he called. He summoned you out from death to life, from opposition to God to friendship with God. He called you out. Those whom he called, he justified. Key word in the book of Romans, he declared you right with God. You've been called, now you're declared right with God. And then I love this, he says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, he, he filled you and, and endowed you with the glory of God forever and ever and ever. And what I love about this is he uses the past tense. Even though you and I would say that being fully glorified, the redemption of our bodies that he talked about in the previous section, that's a future event, right? That's not something that has happened. It's something that will happen. But Paul uses the past tense in order to say, if you know Jesus, you believed in Jesus, you were foreknown, predestined, called, and justified. You will be glorified. And it is so certain that God is working this plan in your life. It's as if it's already happened. You can take it to the bank. So God, he says, God is working this wonderful plan. Even as we groan, even as we suffer, even as we struggle, even as we wait, God is taking all of the broken pieces of our lives and working them into a plan that is greater than we can imagine. I don't know if any of you uh, have ever done 
uh, like a color by number. I'm sure most of you have, or, or, or your kids have done these, right? So, so uh, I, I found this one on the internet. Uh, you might be able to tell what this is. I realize most of us are grown-ups in here, so you can see uh, basically what this is, but you, you got a bunch of white little uh, sections of this, little pieces, and all of them have a different number, and, and you're supposed to color them with a different number. And, and, and as you look at it, you may not fully be able to tell what it is. Well, good news, I printed it off and I colored it for you so you can see. Okay, this actually took me a while to do. It's a unicorn being followed by pigeons, okay? And I don't know exactly why, right? But, but here's, here's the, the idea of this is you look at it and you go, here's this piece and this piece and this piece, and I'm coloring each piece, and I may not know where each piece fits into the grand scheme of things, but then when it's all put together, you go, oh, that's how each piece fits together. This is Paul's picture of what God is doing. All of the disparate pieces of my life as a follower of Jesus Christ, I may not see where they all fit, but God does. I might even look at my life individually and say, where do I fit? I don't know, but God does. And so God is taking your life and my life and your life and his life and her life and he is taking all the pieces of the lives of those who have been called and justified and will be glorified with Jesus Christ. He's taking all of these pieces and he's working them together into a beautiful tapestry for his plan to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And so even as we are waiting, God is always working. God is not asleep. God's hand is still on the wheel. And so Paul says, as we groan and we cry out and we pray for redemption, we can trust that God is moving all of history toward his purposes. So that Romans 8, 28, again, it doesn't offer a quick fix. It offers an eternal hope. God is still working out his plan for us. And then, then he goes on. And he says, as God is working out his plan for us, we have a special kind of confidence that in the midst of him working out his plan, Christ's love never leaves us. Christ's love never leaves us. That's verses 31 to 39. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful passage 
And he says, God is working all things for good. And as he's working all things for good, you can trust that if you know him, you belong to him. If you belong to him, he will never drop you. He will never leave you. He will never abandon you. And this is a beautiful passage about the security of the believer. What, what is often commonly called once saved, always saved. That if you've believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life, and for forgiveness of your sins, that can never be taken away. And that is, that is the reality of where this passage takes us. And yet it's, it's even bigger than that because what he is getting at is in light of all of the redemption of creation. God is working his plan for good. That plan cannot be thwarted. It can't be thwarted for all of creation and it can't be thwarted for your life. And so notice how he makes his argument. He says, look, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Nobody's going to stand up against God if God is for his people. And he goes, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, uh, what is it that belongs to Jesus? We talked about this last week. What does Jesus inherit? Everything. All the kingdom, all the glory, all the power of God. He owns everything. And through his death and his resurrection, he validated he's the king of the universe and all of God's inheritance belongs to him. And he says, now in Jesus Christ, you and I share in that inheritance with our savior, Jesus Christ. If God gave his only son, he's gonna give us for sure eternal life and participation in his kingdom. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Again, rhetorical, nobody. Why? Because God's declared you right, so nobody else can condemn you. Nobody else. Nobody can make an accusation. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. If Jesus says we're righteous and God has declared it in Jesus Christ, he's justified us. There isn't anybody, not you, not me, not Satan himself, who can make an accusation against you that will stick in the courtroom of God. There's a beautiful picture of, of this concept in the book of Zechariah of how when God washes away sin, nobody else can stand and condemn us. In the book of Zechariah, the prophet sees the high priest Joshua standing in the Holy of Holies before God Almighty. And here's what happens. Says the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord shows him. He says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him, right? Satan's name means accuser. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, if I've saved Jerusalem and I've saved the high priest, I plucked them from the fire. Who are you to accuse? And then it goes on. It says, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. I want you to picture the scene. He's in the holiest of holy places to serve God to represent the people before God. And Joshua looks down and to his horror, his, his garments are covered in filth and he's dirty and unholy in the presence of God. And so Satan accuses him. 
he's not worthy. He's not worthy. He's not worthy. Right? And God says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. And then watch what happens. He spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with festal robes, celebration clothes, in other words. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. I love this picture of God's forgiveness and salvation. That that, that foreshadows what Jesus will do for his people through his death and resurrection. He plucks off the filthy garments, replaces them with white, clean garments. And now in the presence of God, nobody, not even Satan himself, can accuse, can say that we're condemned. This is the imagery of Romans 8. If God has declared you right, nobody can condemn you before God. And this is why then he goes on and he says, who then can separate us from the love of Christ. And he lists all of these things. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Of course not. Just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This is from Psalm 44. And the idea is God's people have always experienced suffering and death and grief. It's happened since the time of the ancient saints. It happens today. But God's love for his people never wavers. That's why then he goes on. He says, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. We don't just conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer. Right? 77 to zero, whatever it may be. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's pretty comprehensive. Once God has declared you right with him and inducted you into his plan of redemption, for you and for me, for us as a church and for the entire universe. All things work together and nothing can separate you from the good plan of God. You can take it to the bank. Christ's love never leaves. So while we are waiting, we can trust that God is not going to abandon us. No matter what you do, no matter how much you struggle, those who are in Christ are secure in Christ. And Paul makes this argument to say, God gave his only son. He paid a dear cost for our salvation to rescue us. Why would he then abandon us? One of the most popular rescue-themed movies of the last 20 years is the movie Taken, starring Liam Neeson. Some of you have seen it, but the, the plot centers around a dad who happens to be an ex-CIA agent whose daughter is kidnapped by human traffickers. And so he resolves to rescue her. And you remember that that famous scene, if you've seen it on the phone, where he's talking to the kidnappers, right? And he he says, "Uh, I have developed a particular set of skills, right? Honed over a lifelong career. And he says, you let her go now. I won't try to find you. But if you don't, what does he say? "I I will hunt you down. I will find you. I will kill you. Right? Spoiler alert, he does. He finds him. 
rescues his daughter, brings her home out of peril of death to life and security. Now, I want you to imagine that there was an epilogue to that movie after she's rescued, where she gets a D in Algebra 2, so he kicks her out of the house. That would be incongruent with the concept of the enduring quality of a father's love who would go to the ends of the earth to rescue his child. This is what Paul says. God sent his son. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. And he grew to become a perfect man who perfectly represented God. He died in our place to take the penalty for our failures and sin. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, you're declared right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so that while you are waiting and groaning and wondering if God is at work, you can trust that he's at work, but you can also trust that you're absolutely secure in him. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So again, the gospel is good news because God is working for our good while we're waiting for redemption. His hand's not off the wheel. So that's why, that's why uh, and Paul said it in the previous passage, he says, hey, while we're waiting, what do we, what do, we do? What do we do? And, and, and one, of the, one of the things that we do very simply is we endure in hope. We believe what the scripture says, that God is working out his plan in our lives individually and in all of creation more broadly, and his plan will come to completion because God's past faithfulness for us is the greatest evidence of his future faithfulness on our behalf. He is at work. So we endure, we trust him, we walk with him. In the meanwhile, we endure in hope. And he's going to go on in chapter 9. We're going to be in chapter 9 later in January. We'll take a little break from Romans here for a few weeks. But he's going to go on and he's also going to say, while we endure, we want to share the good news with those who don't have all of the security and blessings yet of knowing Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul is going to say, man, uh, and he'll say, this is hyperbole, I think, but he's going to say, look, I would gladly incur the curse of God if it meant that my countrymen, my relatives, my neighbors, my friends could be saved. Because I want them to know the joy of this salvation and security in Jesus Christ. And so if there are people in your lives that don't know Jesus Christ, The scripture would say, you have the security, you have the beauty of knowing Jesus Christ, so share the good news. What better time to do that than in this season where people are thinking about spiritual things often already? And then thirdly, we thank God for his never-ending love, that we fill our hearts and our minds with the joy that comes from knowing Jesus. I would encourage you, if you haven't yet, memorize Romans 8, 38, and 39, right? I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor 
angels, I need to memorize it better myself, right? Angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'll memorize it with you this week. Memorize that passage and recite it in those moments of doubt and suffering and struggle as you cry out to God for relief from your struggles. Thank him for his never-ending love.